Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I am your host, Curtis Kopotic, and I am joined by my co-host, Amber Brown, and today we are joined once again by Forrest Richardson. Forrest Richardson is Fit for Work's resident OSHA safety specialist. Today, he joins us again to talk more about upcoming OSHA regulatory agenda for 2021. Now, while this isn't always the most exciting topic of what people want to jump into, it sometimes it can be the the most necessary because he really gets us a, a great view of how knowing what's coming in the future and what OSHA rules are going to be taking effect in the future, you can get a jump start on those and make the transition so much easier. Essentially, Forrest has put in all of the legwork for you guys. He's done the research. He's looked into what is on tap for OSHA in 2021. So take a listen to this interview, figure out what applies to your specific industry, and then you can check it out on the OSHA's website. All right. So this is going to be round two of our... 2020 slash 2021 review of where OSHA is going. But last time we focused a lot on the money forest and where OSHA was spending. This time we want to talk, spend more time on some of those newer rules that are for this next year that we want to make people aware of in a way that is digestible and for them to make sense of. So first and most important thing, what are the big rules that are coming out that are important for people to know that OSHA is bringing about? Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely one of the main questions everybody's concerned with. It's worth mentioning that, you know, OSHA's rulemaking process involves about seven distinct stages that may take anywhere between five and 10 years to become effective. So the proposed rule and the final rule stages would be kind of like stages three and five, respectively. So while we won't cover all of them in the short format, these are just a few to kind of keep on your radar that are kind of in that 36 month to three year to four year time frame. The powder industrial trucks, the standard, you know, it really covers like fork trucks, tractors, lift trucks, and motorized hand trucks. And they're in a lot of industries, as our listeners know, retail, work sites, construction, that kind of thing. But the agency standard still relies upon an old American National Standards Institute standard from 1969. And just for real quick for our listeners, part of the rulemaking process when they develop these standards, they rely on things like the ANSI standards and the international standards organizations. They incorporate those standards by reference. They're not part of OSHA. They're actually separate private entities, but these are from the professionals in all those industries, and they help develop the standard. And then OSHA pulls from those and creates the actual standard. So that's kind of how that works. But what they wanted to do is to determine changes that may be needed to be made to locations that on how they're using it, maintenance, training, and operation of powered industrial trucks. They're just taking a look at to see, hey, do we need to kind of revise this and beef this up. OSHA also intends to issue a separate proposal for updating the actual consensus standard, which is what an ANSI standard would be. They call them consensus standards because it is truly a consensus of the engineers and the developers and the people in that industry on that topic that help design that standard for design and construction of powered industrial trucks. So how are they supposed to be designed and that kind of stuff? And what are you doing with that? And basically that just keeps people from just buying some type of a truck someplace else. It has to meet certain standards if you're going to use it in the United States. So the Industrial Truck Association has been encouraging OSHA to update and expand the OSHA standard for a long time, you know, probably over the last 45 years or so. But the current standard covers about 11 types of trucks. And now really with 
technology and innovation, there's actually 19 different types of forklift truck. So in addition, the standard itself incorporates an out-of-date consensus standard. They want to bring that up from an old 1969 version to the new 2016 version. So that's kind of the thing to kind of keep an eye on. And, and why does that make sense to our listeners? You know, if it's not written in black and white in the OSHA rule, then you do have a responsibility to purchase that additional ANSI or ISO standard and see if it's in there and you don't have it, you need to incorporate that as well into your programs, if that makes sense. You know, it's basically just being aware of these changes that are, are happening and not letting yourself fall behind with it. Absolutely. I mean, even, you know, OSHA is kind of more like a legal entity. You kind of have to think like a lawyer about this, but they actually, in the beginning of a lot of standards, they'll say, you know, this ANSI standard is incorporated by reference in this forklift standard or powered industrial truck standard. What that really means in in layman English is if it's not in this OSHA standard, but it is in that ANSI standard, you need to implement it and follow it. They can't cite you for not following a consensus standard, but they get you in other ways. So that's an important kind of a context to look at that. The next one really is about lockout tagout, which is literally everywhere. Everybody's got to deal with that. They're looking at all the recent technological advancements that employ computer-based controls of hazardous energy, like mechanical, electrical, pneumatic, chemical, and radiation that conflict with OSHA's existing lockout tagout standard. So without going into the technical pieces, just the technical innovations that we have based on how the OSHA standard was written said, hey, you need to do lockout tagout a certain way. Well, with a lot of the technological innovations and the computer controls that we have today, they're just as effective, potentially, depending on how they're used, as doing lockout tagout. So there was always this disparity about do we have to go further upstream to that big electrical control box and actually pull the handle down and lock and tag it out? Or can we use this computer piece of equipment? Does that do the same thing? So they're going to be looking at aligning that with all the new designs that's coming up. That's kind of interesting to see that they would go to a electrical model. Is that being well-received or is that some people have been skeptical about? Yeah, you know, operations managers love it and maintenance people would love to do that because then they don't have to go back and trace those lines if they've forgotten it to figure out where they got to shut something off, you know? Right. So it saves them time. But, you know, you had a lot of this come out of kind of like the stamping industry, you know, metal stamping and presses where they would have a certain kind of computer control on it that essentially isolated out the electricity from where the maintenance person was at. But you had this delay in safety people understanding that, hey, depending on how that thing is designed, if it does the same thing, it's just as safe as if I would have isolated out. Now, there's plenty of ways to go wrong with that. You got to be really careful in terms of your design review and your risk assessments so that you can validate that that's what's actually going on and not just what some salesperson tells you it will do. But it's something to keep in mind. The next one would be procedures for handling retaliation complaints under the whistleblower protection statute. So we mentioned that in our previous podcast about just the pattern and the trend of them adding some more staff to their whistleblower protection investigator staff and what that might mean to employers as well. And again, it's not a fear thing. It's just to be mindful of kind of what's going on. So OSHA is promulgating an interim final rule to update the procedures for handling an investigation of retaliation complaints under several whistleblower protection statutes. And what it will really do is make the investigation procedures consistent among, across all of those different statutes as they're written. Those We mentioned that the Whistleblower Act is written into like 20 plus different statutes or laws. 
So what they're trying to do is make those investigation procedures the same. A burger that you make in Texas is going to be a burger that you make in California, that kind of thing, and make the process accessible for employers and employees by providing them uniform standards with regard to various procedural issues, including the sharing of information between parties during the investigation and all that other stuff. So it's something to kind of keep an eye on and look at you know OSHA's position on whistleblower protection rights because they will be beefing up their enforcement arm of that. And I think the final one that's in a final rule is discrimination against employees exercising their rights under the OSHA Act. So you can kind of see the final rule is kind of one of the last stages that we were talking about. Out of the seven, final rule is stage five. So people still have time. They might have another two, three, four years before these things are actually get implemented. You know, there's a couple more things to go through there. But essentially, they're looking at doing the same thing for employees they're redefining the definition of protected activities. So what this, this document is really going to do, it's going to change the rule interpreting the anti-retaliation provision of the Occupational Safety and Health Act. The provision prohibits adverse action, such as discharge, against employees because they've engaged in a protected activity. Protected activity would mean, hey, I made a complaint, and then you either censured me, you wrote me up, you gave me a day off without pay, or you fired me. You can't do that under the Whistleblower Protection Act in these 20-plus different statutes, such as complaining about unsafe or unhealthful working conditions. And we know that OSHA's webpage, How to File a Complaint, is right there on their homepage. So it's just something to keep an eye on and watch out for, kind of see how this is going to turn out over the next couple of years. And it's great to get a jump start on it as well, having you talk to us about it for us so that it can be in people's minds as they're kind of revamping anything. And it seems to be the, the focus on the employees right now is what's going to be mattering over the next couple of years. Sure. And if anybody wants to take a look at this stuff, you can actually just go to OSHA.gov. And once the homepage comes up, if you just go to, I believe it's standards, and then you go to regulatory agenda, you'll come up with all of the stuff, everything that's in a proposed rule stage, a final rule, and that'll give you an idea what to keep an eye on. Great. Forrest, what are the OSHA national emphasis programs that we mentioned in that previous podcast, and why are they important for us to focus on right now? Sure. Basically, it just helps employers add additional degree of optics to their annual compliance plan. So you kind of take a look at federally, and I'm not sure if we clarified this in the last podcast, but the national emphasis programs are kind of federally mandated. And so any state that follows the OSHA's federal rule kind of have to really key in on that. But even states that have their own state-run plan have to do something similar that the federal is doing. So if you're in a state-run state plan, you kind of definitely want to take a look at your individual OSHA state like Washington OSHA or Cal OSHA, kind of see what their regulatory agenda looks like. We'll take a look at the main national emphasis programs that we briefly discussed in the last podcast and talk a little bit more about what they're really looking at at each one. Because in the last one, we just kind of skimmed over kind of what they were. So the first one is combustible dust. Basically, what the compliance, safety, and health officials are told to observe, and that's what these national enforcement programs are, and even the local enforcement or the regional, they're basically just a, a memorandum to their compliance officers about how to approach that topic. So it covers everything about what to look for, and, and this is kind of what we'll, can't cover all of it in depth in the short format, but we'll look at combustible dust. So what they're going to be looking at is they're going to observe areas of the plant for accumulations of what they call hazardous levels of dust. 
For example, any dust laying around that's greater than one thirty seconds of an inch. And for those of the people that blew past fractions in school, that's basically the size of a paperclip, you know, laying flat on a desk. That's about one thirty seconds of an inch. So likely areas of dust accumulations within the plant that they might be looking at is structural members, like in your roof, you know, your roof trusses, conduits and pipe racks, electrical especially, cable trays, which are just, you know, cable raceways for electrical pipes, floors, above the ceiling, on and around equipment, anything where dust can get behind an electrical cabinet, missing knockouts or holes on your electrical equipment. That's one of the reasons why that's an OSHA 101 violation is because dust gets back into electrical equipment and builds up, catches fire. And I've seen this happen more times than I care to admit, you know, over the last 20 plus years. The next one is hazardous machinery. So we're really talking about looking at machine guarding and lockout tagout, primarily machine guarding. But what this national enforcement program will target is industrial and manufacturing workplaces that have machinery and equipment that can potentially cause amputation. We want to prevent amputations relative to anything regarding machine guarding, which kind of by proxy ties into lockout tagout. So if they come to your site and they're looking for machine guarding hazards, they're also probably going to look pretty deeply at your lockout tagout program for any potential gaps. So they'll review your OSHA log, incident reports. You can expect that. If any machinery equipment is associated with amputations is present, what they're going to do is pay particular attention to employee exposure to nit points, pinch points, shear points, cutting actions, any other points of operation where they're getting their hands in the fire zone or any body part you know, in that danger zone. They'll consider and evaluate employee exposures during setup, regular operation of the machine, clearing jams, any kind of upset or unplanned conditions, making adjustments while the machine is operating, cleaning of it, all of that. So this is a really good reason why we should have standard work practices or processes drafted for these key high hazard risks. Definitely have job safety analysis or job hazard analysis on these things. You want to have standard work on some of these critical key components. Training, they'll look at that as well. Because of the technical nature of some of these inspections, they're going to make sure their folks are trained up. You know, the compliance officers, these people generally will be really well-versed in machine guarding, which can get pretty technical, and lockout attack as well. So that's what to expect on that. Just real quick on that, the lockout takeout, because we talked about it just earlier with the proposed rule stage. Do you feel that the two are tied together or that proposed rule is more because of the technological advances and becoming more computer run versus an actual mechanical lockout takeout with that lock? Do you feel those two are tied or more focusing on separate things? I would say more accurately, they're interdependent. Okay. You have machine guarding to protect people while the machine is running. You have lockout tagout, which gets rid of all the energy sources, no matter what, for when they're maintenancing or servicing it. So the lockout tagout standard was really written for the trades industry folks. That's kind of where it came out of, you know, for the people that are doing maintenance or servicing on it. And so machine guarding is really about everything while it's running. They're interdependent. They go hand in hand. Sounds good. Sticking with the safety topic, is your company at risk for an OSHA, DOT, or EPA violations? You need a safety compliance easy button. And Fit for Work can help. The fines are real and the human consequences can be much worse. Get up to speed quickly and easily by working with our experienced team of safety professionals. We will partner with you to find the gaps, get you in compliance, and keep you there. It's not worth the risk. Reach out to wellworkforce.com and click on the safety compliance button for more information. 
What's next on our national emphasis programs? Hexavalent chromium, which has been out for a while. They've, they've had it out since 2010. And that's the Aaron Brockovich chromium, chrome six. That's the bad one. The, what the CSHOs or compliance safety and health officers will consider, they're going to evaluate work exposures and compliance in regard to activities, including but not limited to regular operations. What are they doing during setup and preparation for regular operations? making adjustments during operations, cleaning of the process area, scheduled, unscheduled maintenance issues, implementation of engineering controls, use of personal protective equipment, medical surveillance programs, and worker training and education. So they really cover the full gamut of all of that stuff that applies to hex chrome. So, you know, for companies that work with this, nine times out of 10, they're already going to have some industrial hygiene sampling data that shows them, are they above the limits, below the limits? And if they are, well, then they have to implement all these things, standard work procedures. They've got to implement PPE that actually prevents, you know, breakthrough of hexavalent chromium. They got to look at medical surveillance programs. How are they training them? So if you're dealing with this, you definitely want to kind of go through your whole program, make sure you got all those main points covered. The next one is lead. This has been out since 08, probably. It's been around for a while. It was implemented to direct OSHA's field inspection efforts to address lead exposures in the workplace, including general industry, construction, shipyards, marine terminals, which is 1917, and longshoring, which is uh, regulation starts with 1918 on that one. All inspections under this NAP must address all aspects of any potential lead work or exposure, include a review of all related written documentation. We're really talking about your record keeping, your monitoring programs, your compliance programs, your medical, you know, management issues, you know, your medical programs, respirator fit testing and procedures come into play here with lead, hazard communication also gets addressed, and training materials. So, you know, if you're dealing with lead, you definitely want to have all those main areas covered as well. They got another one in primary metal industry. So this is industries that are dealing with a lot of your base stuff, you know, foundry operations and those kinds of things. So they'll look at your OSHA logs. They're going to look at your PB hazard assessment, which is another good reason for having that done. And OSHA's general requirements for PPE, they, they tell employers, hey, you have to conduct an assessment to determine, you know, what hazards are present or likely to be present. And is your PPE protecting them from that? They don't tell you you have to certify or document it, but everybody knows if you don't, it didn't happen. So they'll also look at your HASCOM program. So that's going to be your material safety data sheets. It's going to be your signs and your labels on things and respiratory protection. You know, that again, that's going to be your respirator fit testing, your annual medical exams, and your training as well. So if you're dealing with that kind of stuff, like a foundry operation, focus on your OSHA logs. Make sure they're going to look at that right away. Make sure you get those PP hazard assessments done. Look at your HASCOM program, hitting at least the minimum requirements on all that and respiratory protection as well. Next one is process safety management. It's actually under the OSHA general industry regs. It's 1910-119, and it basically covers process safety management of highly hazardous chemicals. So if you're a chemical plant, you know, if you think of that on land or even offshore, but if you're a general industry company, like if you're a food manufacturer and you're using carbon dioxide to, as a refrigerant in your systems for your chillers and coolers, well, if you have so many pounds of that, well, then you have to have this whole process safety management program in place. And you can think of PSM as it's commonly known as kind of like Six Sigma or 5S or 6S. It's every step 
Do you have a board people putting together that's made up of everybody? Are you meeting? Are you documenting your notes? Do you have, have you had your risk assessments done? What are you doing about it? It's really detailed and it's very specific. It's definitely mechanical, definitely a lot of engineering. Are you replacing components? When you pull something off a piece of equipment that has highly hazardous chemicals, are you replacing that component with the same kind, original equipment manufacturer, so that it doesn't fail and expose somebody, that kind of thing. So it's pretty detailed. But this one is going to be a little bit different than the program quality verification that came out. They had a a compliance directive on just the quality verification, their inspections. This one is actually going to be more specific questions asked. So when this kicks out or it's already out, The emphasis is going to be on implementation versus all your documentation. Now, we already mentioned that PSM requires a lot of significant documentation. It's not as easy program to manage. But when they come in to inspect underneath this national enforcement program, they're going to be looking at actually, are we doing what we say we're doing? So they'll look at your written program, and if you have all that dress right dress and it looks pretty good, they're going to be asking dynamic questions of you to see if you know, what's on paper actually is working. They're going to really go in deep. And there is a dynamic list of questions OSHA asks, and it can be found within that national enforcement program. So like we mentioned a few minutes ago, if you go to OSHA.gov, you go to standards, you go to those emphasis programs, and you click on the actual PDF and you read it, there will be a list in the appendix of the dynamic types of questions that OSHA is going to ask you. And that's a pretty good litmus test for if you have a PSM program, if you can answer all those effectively, you're probably doing okay. So it doesn't have to be a guessing game for everybody. The questions are right there for them to look at and make sure that that they're following along with all of those. Yeah, and I think they did that because PSM is relative to like the forklift, you know, complying with that. Reading Each standard is challenging to read through in and of itself, but PSM is pretty involved. So I think they did that to help folks out. So if multiple deficiencies are found under this inspection, the CSHO or the Compliance Safety and Health Official may, with approval from the area director, they have to get approval first, they can expand that inspection outside the scope of this process safety management, which means they basically can look at other things. So folks that have PSM, they understand the value of it, but this may help the people that are managing it have those crucial conversations with their leadership to get the more support to get into compliance with their PSM program. So that's always a challenge. Great. So there are just a few more of these national emphasis programs by OSHA this year, starting the ship breaking as well. Yeah, it'll focus on asbestos exposure, polychlorinated biphenyls, which PCBs, exposure, lead exposure, confined space, paint removal, metal cutting and disposal process. Hascom comes into play. They'll be looking at that. Powered industrial trucks, how you're using it. Walking, working surfaces and fall protection, because as they disassemble the ships, there's a whole lot of problems there. Hearing conservation, are we taking care of our people's ears? Some industry-specific things like bilge water removal, which is kind of more like an EPA issue as well, but oil removal, cranes, welding, cutting, fire prevention, emergency action plans, and PPE programs. Almost feels like you mentioned all of them, but there's a lot more standards <laughs> to follow. But if you're doing shipbreaking operations, you really want to take a look at those we just mentioned and make sure you got those dialed in. All right. So now what about silica and crystalline? Yeah, silica, they've been pushing that for a long time in construction as well. I've worked with several general industry companies that got cited about this. And what it's really there is to identify and reduce or eliminate workers' exposure to respirable crystalline silica, or they call it RCS, a common term for that, in general industry, maritime, and construction. So it targets specific industries expected to have the highest exposure. So if you're a small business person and you have a little concrete mixer as part of your operations, you're probably not going to be high on their list. You know, these would be your larger 
bigger firms, larger, more, mm-hmm. more exposure, bigger frequency. But they'll be looking at air monitoring data relative to other health hazards that may be observed, like exposure to elevated noise levels from cutting, drilling, or blasting operations that are involved. Heat stress, they'll be looking at this specifically in construction. And they don't have a heat stress standard under general industry yet, but they've talked about it for a while. And exposure to any beryllium dust during abrasive blasting. So you really want to take a look at those main things. Oh, yeah. Always important to pay attention when things are being blasted, for sure. Uh, last but not least, <laughs> trenching and excavation. What is the on the horizon for that? Yeah, I mean, this basically came out of the construction industry a long time ago, but this National Enforcement Emphasis Program has been out since 2018. But the goal of it is to identify and reduce hazards which are causing or likely to cause serious injuries and fatalities from trenching and excavation operations. Uh, Whenever they observe an open trench or an open excavation, regardless of whether or not a violation is readily observed, those observations may occur during the course of their normal workday travel or while engaged in a programmed, unprogrammed inspection. I'm talking about the compliance officer's day here. Trenching and excavation operations will also be assigned for inspection as a result of any incidents that are reported, referrals either from employees like complaints or maybe even your competitors, you know, or local businesses. You know, they see something not right and they call, they refer OSHA to you and obviously employee complaints. So trenching and excavation is definitely is one of those serious things. Uh, a lot of us, when we drive by them and we see them on the roadway, we take them for granted, but that's pretty involved, you know, so it's one of those big things that you got to deal with. We've already covered a lot in our short format here, and there are too many regional emphasis programs versus, you know, the few that we covered as far as national emphasis programs. Forrest, where can our listeners look for more information on what is going on in their specific area? Sure. There's actually 10 different regions that OSHA has authority over. So if you want to find out what your region is and what's going on there, just go to OSHA.gov forward slash enforcement forward slash directives forward slash LEP. And that stands for local emphasis program or And you can just quickly look in your own region, if you will, and see kind of what industry specific things they might be looking at for you. Yeah, definitely really important to pay attention on the national and local. And kind of the last thing we wanted to talk about here is for those who find themselves having issues or fines with OSHA, that you mentioned that there's a a debt collection program in process. So I wanted to go over the, the general overview about what this process is and what people can expect from it. Sure. OSHA is prioritizing inspections of establishments that are delinquent in their payment of civil monetary penalties from a previous inspection. That's pretty much what this is all about. So they're doing so because these establishments are known violators. I know that's a harsh word, but technically, legally, they violated a standard and by not paying their fines when they have the ability to do so. So there is a reason to doubt their commitment to OSHA's health and safety requirements. So if they think that, hey, you've got a track record of not complying and we they do all of their research before they ever show up on site. So they know you're done in Bradstreet number. They kind of know financially where you sit. They'll have an idea what you can pay. Prioritization will occur in basically three steps. The first is the Directorate of the Administrative Programs under OSHA, or the DAP, will generally generate a monthly list of establishments that have delinquent debts. This is all internally by OSHA. Debts not paid by 30 calendar days after their due date, okay, they're going to take that list. They're going to screen out of this list those establishments that are on a payment plan already. The second step will be the DAP list of delinquent establishments will be provided to the regional offices to distribute to all of their area offices by OSHA. 
And then third, area officers in your own individual city will use this list in developing their programmed inspection list. So we briefly mentioned that over several podcasts that OSHA has so many programmed inspections that they have to do. And we mentioned that, hey, they're going to be responding or beefing up their serious incident report. Those are unprogrammed inspections. So when people get hurt and OSHA has to be notified by the employer and they send you back the information to fill out, that's an unplanned inspection. The area offices will consult with the delinquent establishments or the employer's list as they draw up programmed inspection lists under the existing national emphasis programs we just covered or the regional emphasis program. So they're going to be looking at all of those. So if you're delinquent on a list and you're on the delinquent payment list and it's definitely on one of these national emphasis programs or regional emphasis programs or even the local emphasis programs, that's going to kind of bump you up potentially on the list to be inspected under this. So the particular employer with overdue fines would otherwise fit the criteria of that special emphasis programs. The area offices will include that employer on the program inspection master list. OSHA will change the debt collection activities. They're kind of changing the frequency of the letters that they're going to send you. So for our listeners and for the EHS folks and the HR managers, you know, you had a, if this happened to you, you would get a letter and obviously you're anxious about that. So what we really want to just communicate is, hey, once you expect kind of what their new frequency of notices that they're going to send to you, it's not going to solve all your anxieties because you still have the issue. You still got to deal with them like the IRS, but as long as you understand what to expect, maybe that'll help you prioritize things. You know, so the new practices under this debt collection program is seven calendar days after the penalty is due, OSHA will send a payment due reminder, and that's going to be letter one. 14 calendar days after the penalty is due, the establishment will receive a call, and so they're going to transcribe that call. What they're currently still doing is 30 calendar days after the due date that you were supposed to pay, they're going to send a demand letter. That's going to be your second letter. And then 60 calendar days after the due date, OSHA will send another demand letter. That's letter three. And then area offices and the national offices will use the standardized demand letters and call transcript attached. It changes the outline in the memorandum will take effect on inspections initiated after the date of this enforcement program. So it's already out there. They're already going to start doing this. Changes that are outlined on this will just need to be watched. Current rule is, is 14 days after you receive the notice from OSHA, which generally comes certified mail, which you can expect that about a month to three months maybe after they cite you. So you have time to fix things. But 15 days from you receiving that certified letter that you got to fix it, you got to fix it permanently or you got to pay the fine or you got to request to do, you know, the informal conference and debate it all out like your property taxes. So this changes it up just a little bit. They send you a letter one seven days after you, your due date. 14 days, they're going to send you a letter and give you a call. And then 30 days after that, they're going to send another letter. That's letter two, 60 calendar days after the due date. They're going to send another demand letter to letter three. So you definitely don't want to wait till that demand letter three. <laughs> you want to get a, get ahead of it and deal with it. Yeah, it sounds like these early reminders, the new practices that they're doing will kind of help keep it on everybody's mind and, and hopefully be able to avoid those demand letters. Yeah, and I think it goes with the whole kind of pendulum swing. So, you know, what I think personally is that we can expect a little beefing up of their enforcement. They still have the same challenges that businesses have. They still have not enough resources, not enough personnel. They're still going to be focusing on the highest hazard areas and in industries. You know, they have limitations to what they can actually do. I just would encourage everybody to kind of keep it in perspective. There's a balance to all of this. Well, we're trying to give people some information for planning, not fear. 
Perfect. Well, thank you for so much for keeping us and our listeners up to date on some of these new rule changes and everything with OSHA for 2021 and putting in all of that research so that we know exactly where to go. We really appreciate all of your time. Sure. Thank you very much. Well, once again, Forrest does a great job of getting the clip notes versions of all the information. I mean, OSHA, it's a big organization because they've had to see so much. And in the end, they're trying to take everything that they've seen as an organization. Because one business obviously doesn't go around to say, hey, what are you doing as a business and how have you screwed up? I really like that we have a place that we can go to that wants to help other people not repeat the same mistakes. So all these new regulations have a purpose. I mean, whether or not you go around with a paper clip to try to measure your dust or not. Um, you know, there's just taking care of all those little things. We've had a lot of problems in the past and we want to not repeat those mistakes. So great by Forrest and overviewing so much of what we can expect from OSHA in these rules. Exactly. When he was talking about the dust, I was thinking, oh shoot, I better clean my house this weekend. Real, real glad OSHA isn't swinging by this way. Forrest did cover those national emphasis programs and then directed all of us on where we can find some of those regional emphasis programs as well. So we should be well prepared at this point running into 2021 with our eyes wide open on what to expect and things that maybe we can focus on before OSHA might stop by. Definitely. So we want to thank you all for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen. And to get started preventing injuries, visit our website, wellworkforce.com, and click on Connect with us to learn more. And please email us with any questions or comments to podcast at wellworkforce.com. And remember, prevention improves lives. 